You're listening to You Might Have a Point, a podcast about politics and related topics such as philosophy, psychology, public policy, journalism, and culture. The basic idea of the show is that, even when you disagree with someone on some things, it can often be worth it to find common ground by saying, you know, you might have a point. If you want to learn more about the podcast or the blog that accompanies it, you can visit youmighthaveapoint.com. I am pleased to welcome to the podcast today, Matt Lewis, the senior columnist for The Daily Beast, senior political commentator, and author of the book, Too Dumb to Fail, How the GOP Betrayed the Reagan Revolution to Win Elections and How It Can Reclaim Its Conservative Roots. Matt Lewis, welcome to the podcast. Hey, good to be here. It's good to talk to you. Normally, we talk on my show, so... (laughs) (laughs) That is correct. Yeah, you're referring to the DM Zooms, which are uh, hosted... And you can participate in if you want to be a support either you or Bill Share on Patreon. That's right, but just support so, me. You don't need to support Bill uh, Share. Well, because... yeah, I actually support both of you. I, I like his <laughs> podcast, even though I, I agree. He's, he's a great guy. Yeah, I agree with you uh, more politically. Um, let, let me put it this way. If, if more liberals in the world were like Bill Share, it would be a better place. Amen. Um, okay. if, more, if more conservatives were like Bill Sher, it would probably be a better place. Uh, uh, yeah, that's days. true. Um, okay, so where I like to start off the podcast is uh, just asking you, how would you describe the approach that you take to your commentary, both in terms of your ideology and then the overall ethos of your approach? Yeah, so ideologically, I, I am a conservative, uh, at least what a conservative meant five years ago. Um, So I'm kind of a Reagan kind of conservative and um, but I don't, but I don't see myself as like a team player. Like I don't see myself as a partisan Mm -hmm. or a member of any team. So conservatism is a worldview and it's sort of impacts everything about my life and about the way that I view, you know, politics and government and policy. Um, So I, Generally, the things that I write about, the positions I take are not based on trying to help somebody win an election or even a public policy battle per se. Mm -hmm. It's just informed by my political philosophy and perspective. And um, in terms of writing, I just try to tell the truth. You know, um, I remember I heard uh, Bruce Springsteen did an interview on Fresh Air a while back with Terry Gross. And he said, you know, like I knew I was never going to be like the best singer I was never going to be like the best guitar player like Eddie Van Halen. But what I could do is be authentic. I could tell mm-hmm. the truth as I saw it. And that's kind of the perspective I've taken or the, um, the strategy I've taken as a writer. I'm never going to have sources like Bob Costa at the Washington Post. And I'm never going to be Hemingway in terms of my prose style or whatever. Yeah. But what I can do is, is, is share my perspective in a very honest way. And that's what I aim to do. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, the, you mentioned Bruce Springsteen. I actually heard a anecdote once. Um, I was interviewing a DJ back in when I was in high school, and he described this one time where uh, Springsteen was staying at a hotel, and he went down to eat, and like he wasn't wearing a collared shirt, and they will, you know, apparently had a dress code. And he said, you know, most musicians, you know, famous people much less famous than Springsteen would be like, what? There's a dress code? You know, I'm Bruce Springsteen. Like, let me in. But he was just like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, so I think you're, you're absolutely right that um, Springsteen kind of represents the 
a humble approach and an authentic approach. Um, so uh, you mentioned like what conservative meant five years ago. Uh, would you say that you've kind of always had the approach of just sticking to the truth or if it, have you had to rethink some of your um, prior commitments in the Trump era? Ever since I became a writer, I've always taken this philosophy of I have to tell the truth, not only because it's the right thing to do, but just because it was like a competitive advantage. Again, mm -hmm. I mean, it was, why would people read Matt Lewis? Um, one of the only, you know, one of the things you can get is, is again, I'm not Hemingway. I don't always have the best sources. You know, that's not my, mm -hmm. my game isn't, isn't access. My game is not to be like buddy, buddy with like members of the Freedom Caucus who are going to be texting me you know, about how the de debt limit or debt ceiling, you know, what, what the latest vote is going to look like. That's never been my angle, right? So what what can it be? Uh, and, and really what it is, is someone who can provide a conservative perspective and tell the truth about it and uh, come what may. Yeah. So that has always been, since I became a writer, that has been um, my, my brand. Angry. Yep. My brand, for, for lack of a better word, um, my brand. Um, but I will say it's become weird and challenging to do that in this political era where, um, you know, if you criticized, you know, George W. Bush or, or Mitt Romney or, or John McCain, there, there was some latitude for that. Right. And with, with Trump, there, you know, if, you, if you're not 100% loyal, then you are a traitor. Regardless and of so whether you're being more, more conservative than he is. Yeah, for sure. Um, so let's go now to uh, Biden. I guess you, you said you wanted him to win, though you didn't vote for him. Um, and you were worried, I think, to some extent that he would be sort of taken over by the left wing. But um, since the election, I think you've been generally pleased with um, his demeanor and both his, and also his cabinet picks. Is that right? Well, um, so I voted for Biden in the primary in Virginia. Mm -hmm. I, I live in West Virginia now. I lived in Virginia till like April. Um, <clears throat> so in March, I voted for Biden in the primary. That was basically a vote to stop Bernie Sanders sure. um, from taking over the Democratic Party. I did not vote in the 2016 election or the 2020 election. I didn't vote for Trump. I also didn't vote for Hillary. I also didn't vote for Biden. And, um, you know, my concerns about Trump are primarily based on Trump and my concerns about Biden are primarily based on the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. and, and the fact is that, you know, Joe Biden isn't going to be making all the decisions. Um, and, uh, and I am concerned that he will be pushed to the left. Um, but, you know, early on, I have to say I've been generally pleased. I will say just in the last couple of days, he has made um some cabinet picks that that are more concerning okay um namely his hhs secretary nominee um who is someone who has been not just pro-choice but sort of attacking uh, the pro cause mm. in the past so you know Generally speaking, I think that Joe Biden is probably a pretty decent guy. Uh, he is, for a Democrat, he's, he's a moderate or a centrist uh, Democrat, 
Uh, yeah, but... I've heard him described as the weather vane of the Democratic Party, basically right <laughs> yes. in the middle of the Democratic Party, which I think is accurate. So I don't think he's a radical, crazy person, but I'm also not entirely comfortable with the direction that, that things are probably going to sure. be going with him either. Yeah, I personally, the cabinet pick that, uh, well, it's not a cabinet pick, but the appointment that is being floated that I guess most concerned me from, uh, I guess, a I don't know, uh, maybe a policy perspective or just a view on the right way to run a government. Uh, it was Pete Buttigieg for ambassador to China. And I guess I get that ambassadorships are often like either favors that you give to someone or something that you give to someone to get them out of the way. But uh, I personally think that um, China is a, is a huge player on the world scene, obviously, and we need to pick someone with perhaps more experience than Buttigieg. Uh, what's your take on that? Well, that's a good point. I mean, I think China is, with apologies to Mitt Romney, our, our greatest geopolitical rival. And the, you know, they're our real threat mm -hmm. um, from a geopolitical standpoint. Um, having said that, I think that that Buttigieg, although he was just mayor of a small town in Indiana, um, is very smart and very competent. Sure. And yeah, that's from a substantive standpoint. experience and intelligence experience, apparently. He does, well, right. And then I would just yeah. say from a political standpoint, in terms of the just reality of, of political favors and, right. and rewards, he endorsed Biden at the right time mm. and has been a very effective and loyal surrogate. So um, I'd probably prefer to see him ambassador to a different country, but right. but it wouldn't surprise me if this if this happens. No, I think I think that's all right, and uh, I guess the it's just a fact of presidential politics that um, running for president is the way that you um, get, become a household name. Uh, so it can help you. Okay. It could yeah. also, I mean, there are, there are people, you know, there are people who who probably come out of it uh, tarnished or mm -hmm. or at least diminished. Like I think Rudy Giuliani and and Fred Thompson. Uh, would probably fit into that category. Jim Gilmore probably fits into that category. But there are a lot of other people like Mike Huckabee um, and Pete Buttigieg who uh, who really kind of make a name for themselves mm -hmm. by, by running. They don't have to win, but if they run and impress, it, it can catapult their career. Yep. So, which, which I think is a bad incentive if you think <laughs> about it, right? It, it's oh, an incentive yeah. for people who know they're not going to win or who don't think they're ready um, to use it for, you know, to for sort of advance game. their political yeah. career. Yeah. And it can, I mean, you know, if you have five or 10 people who are basically just doing that, then it can muddy the waters of a primary and, you know, allow an outsider who's not a true conservative to win. Um. <laughs> if you imagine that, that sounds like yeah. a fantastical idea I, I that could I know. actually I happen, right? <laughs> Right. Okay. So um, now moving on to some more post-election analysis. Uh, the Atlantic had an editorial uh, a couple of days ago where they noted 88% um, of Republicans in the House and the Senate uh, had refused to acknowledge that Joe Biden won the presidency. I guess, uh, you know, you've been critical of Trump's legal team for making outlandish claims and frivolous lawsuits and, and Trump himself. But how much responsibility do you think is on uh, the Republicans in in the House and Senate um, 
to acknowledge that at the very least that Biden is the apparent president-elect. I think it is incumbent upon all of us to recognize reality. And when we don't do that, then we are, um, we are, are creating a world in which alternate realities are given uh, as much space as reality. And that has huge, huge consequences. But I just think this is a continuation of what the Republicans have been doing for years now, which is to, you know, Winston Churchill said appeasement is, is feeding a crocodile hoping he eats you last. And that's been the whole strategy with Donald Trump is to placate him and uh, in the hopes that he will eventually go away. And he just, all he does is get stronger and they get weaker. Yeah, no, it's interesting and strange. Um, I saw an interview with Marco Rubio today who said, among other things, if the president chooses to run again in 2024, he'll be the Republican nominee, which I thought was fascinating given that you know, Rubio ran in 2016, uh, presumably still has presidential ambitions, yet is willing, at least in his words right now, to automatically give it to him. Well, I mean, as an, if, if Rubio is speaking as an analyst, he, he, may, be, he may well be right. Um, it's something I would say if Donald Trump win, uh, runs, he'll win. Mm -hmm. um, as an analyst, that, that's probably not bad uh, analysis. It's good starting gas, yeah. But, you know, it, but the larger point is that Rubio is, um, you know, symbolic of of what has happened to the Republican Party and, mm -hmm. and how it has just caved to, to Donald Trump. And, and this suggests that that there were pre-existing problems, right, that this is not a mm -hmm. courageous party. This is not a party of of leaders, of adults, of sticking to uh, principles. Yeah. For sure. Exactly. And I mean, Rubio's on a very short list of people who have disappointed me most, um, partly because I had such high expectations for him and, and because he has underachieved so famously. I mean, I voted for Rubio. I voted for Rubio in the primary. And I have a picture of, I guess it was 2015, when Rubio announced his presidential campaign. I have a picture of my son standing under the TV, one of those wall-mounted TVs. And I have a picture of my son standing under the TV with Rubio on the screen announcing his candidacy. And I took that picture <clears throat> thinking it would become like, you know, one of those photos like Bill Clinton meets JFK or, mm -hmm. uh, or, 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 or uh, like Woodrow Wilson looking out the window at Theodore or, you know, I forget who it is. Maybe it's Theodore Roosevelt looking out the window at the Lincoln's uh, funeral procession. I, I forget what it is, but there's some famous. I, I just I thought that it would be like an historic thing. Maybe, you know, not that my son's going to be president, right, right. but just like within our family. <laughs> A cute little, yeah, yeah. You know, that Rubio. More, it was about. I thought Rubio would go down in history as being. I, I just hoped he would be like the continuation of the Reagan Revolution, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and to have a picture of my son at that. I just thought it would be a keepsake. And um, sadly, it's, uh, <laughs> it, it is not. Yeah. I, I think one dynamic that's relevant here is that, um, you know, I think politicians do what politicians do in terms of, you know, saying what they think is in their own best interests. But they also um, can just like the rest of us be caught up in their own media bubble, uh, overplay the dangers of the other side, underplay the dangers of 
their own side. And it takes a lot of work to actually be consciously aware, especially in the Trump era, given you know how deranged some liberals can be and given how devoted some conservatives to be like actually finding a principled commitment to the truth takes effort. It takes, you know, reading different sources. And I think it's pretty apparent to me that that's not what a lot of politicians, even the ones who would align with my policy preferences are doing most of the time. No, I think that's true. But remember people like Rubio were, you know, Rubio was kind of a special case. Mm. He was like, you know, he, he was anti-establishment. Remember he, he ran against Charlie Crist, who had been the governor of Florida, who was very popular in Florida and sort of an establishment moderate. Rubio won as kind of a Tea Party guy, but he wasn't the crazy Tea Party guy. He was in like stark contrast to the, you know, Sharon Angles and Christine O'Donnell's of that era. And Rubio emerged as, you know, not an intellectual per se, but as a, a thoughtful, smart, eloquent, optimistic conservative, you know? Remember the speech he gave? He used to talk about his dad was a bartender in Las Vegas. And he said that journey from behind that bar to behind this podium is the essence of the American dream. It's just inspiring words. And we, one could imagine you know, Republicans electing the first Hispanic president who was optimistic and talked about ideas and innovation. I mean, I, right. I had really high hopes for the guy. And um, it turns out he's a politician. <laughs> yep. So uh, let's turn now to- That some hurts of the, me to say, to be honest yeah. with you, but it, it's yeah. the truth, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think for people like you and me in our position, um, Larry Hogan is- you know, someone that we can still have hopes in. Uh, but I think while on the one hand, he has demonstrated a remarkable ability um, electorally and, you know, a very blue state of Maryland. On the other hand, he's by virtue of being a governor and not a senator or congressman, been able to stay out to a large extent of um, everything that's involved with national politics, which I think it's fair to say that national politics, a lot of times it's just the culture war and he's avoided that very studiously in, in Maryland. So um, I think, you know, one comparison that I heard uh, David Byler make uh, was that I think thinking that Larry Hogan would win the Republican nomination would be like thinking Joe Manchin would win the Democratic nomination. I don't know if that's quite right, but it seems closer to me to the truth than the opposite. Uh, what do you think of Hogan's chances in 2024? I think I generally agree with that assessment. I mean, the Republican Party seems to have been taken over um, by Donald Trump fans. And the idea that someone like Hogan could win, it doesn't seem likely. Um, mm -hmm. But I also don't think it's impossible. Like the one lesson from Trump is we don't know anything and people surprise you, right? And so right. Like just as I didn't think the Republican Party would go from Mitt Romney <laughs> to Donald Trump, I mean, wouldn't you think there'd be like a stopover at Ted Cruz on the way? <laughs> you wouldn't think you would go yeah. straight from Romney to, to Trump. Right. So like lesson one is we don't know anything and we could be surprised. Yep. Um, the other thing I will say about Larry Hogan that I think is in his favor is although he is a moderate or a centrist ideologically. He is not temperamentally. Like, 
most of these moderates feel kind of soft. Right. I mean, you know, John Kasich, Jeff Flake. Uh, there's a certain type of moderate person Timidity. that is like yep. temperamentally moderate. They come across as a little weak. I'm not saying that they are. Um, I'm just saying like from a, you know, and hell, maybe I do too. But I'm just saying like from a, um, I don't know, the perception is sure, that they're soft. Sure. But Hogan has a Chris Christie vibe. And I think that that actually covers a multitude of sins. And the Republican base who loves fighters may actually be more inclined to support a fighter like Hogan. Remember, Hogan's right. strong. He fought against cancer. He's fought against Trump. And he fought uh, you know, against the, the Democrats uh, in Maryland, beating them twice and going up against the, uh, the riots in Baltimore. And so the fact that he's a fighter and that he temperamentally feels like a kind of a tough guy right. means I think he actually might do better with Republican primary voters than you would think based on his ideology. Yeah, I, I would say that that's probably true. I think um, the question is, is how much of the um, ability to fight the liberal media as sort of the, well, you know, to quote Trump as the enemy of the people, obviously I don't think they are, but there's, there's an appeal to that among some Republicans. Um, and it's just like fighting is good, but fighting has to go in one direction only. Um, so yeah. well, I can not, see Hogan yeah. fighting. I can see Hogan getting in fights with liberal press and fighting mm -hmm. the liberal media. And then I could see him doing, remember how Chris Christie like knifed Marco Rubio mm -hmm. when Rubio kept saying, um, uh, let's dispense with this, you know, false notion that Barack Obama doesn't, this fiction that Barack Obama doesn't know exactly what he's doing. Like Rubio kept reciting that rehearsed talking point yep. and Christie like caught him out on it and said like, you're, you're just a politician. Like I could see Hogan doing that to Republicans, the Josh Hollies of the world, the Ted Cruz's of the world, the Marco Rubio's of the world who refused to like mm. say anything bad about Donald Trump. Um, like, let's say we're in a situation where Trump is flirting with the idea of running in 2024, but he hasn't actually gotten in. So he's sort of frozen the field. You could have a situation where someone like Rubio says, I'm going to run as long as Trump doesn't, you know, but if Trump runs, mm -hmm. I'll get out. Well, that's open. That would open the door for Hogan to start calling him a wimp and calling him out on that and being the tough guy. So I, I don't think it's likely. I wouldn't bet on Hogan. But I do think that there's a, a window or like a, yeah. a door, a like there's a pathway for sure. that I don't think other people are, are giving him credit for. Yep. So in terms of just the conservative movement more broadly, uh, I think, you know, there are always going to be people at think tanks that are trying to come up with uh, policy solutions that actually have some benefit and might even get some uh, play within the Republican Party. I think, you know, for too long, we've just been the party of tax cuts. And that can be a good thing if, you know, the tax rates are as, as high as they were in 1980. But at the same time, you got to have more than that, right? So I guess one, I'm looking for signs of hope. And I think one sign of hope, if you're a conservative, would be that um, when your party is not in power, it can be a time to come up with policy solutions that actually work if you put in the effort. Um, would you say that that's right? Well, historically, I think that has been true, but in recent history, that has not happened. I yeah. mean, I, I thought that maybe that's what the Republican Party would be doing w during the Obama era. 
-hmm. but that really didn't happen. So that's the concern. But yeah, theoretically, time in a wilderness could actually be therapeutic and force you to come up with ideas and, and, and not just rebrand as the opposition, but, but as an opposition that has like fully developed and coherent ideas. We saw right away that Republicans couldn't even replace Obamacare. Right. They just, and, 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 you know, (laughs) this is an interesting sort of story. I, um, you know, I, I fully expected, because remember, you had, when, when Trump first became president, you had like Tom Price in there. Um, you had Paul Ryan was, you know, the Speaker of the House. And I fully expected that Republicans would come up with some sort of a plan to replace, to repeal and replace Obamacare. And I wasn't sure what it would be. But you, you had to do all sorts of things like, I mean, there was a fear that if you got rid of the individual mandate, that you would have this situation where like sick people, old sick people are signing up for, for uh, health care, but, mm-hmm. you know, but, but young healthy people were opting out. So you had, you had to have the individual mandate, but you couldn't have the individual mandate because like I, number one, I think it's unconstitutional no matter what John Roberts thinks. And like, number two, I just think it's unconservative, you know, I mean, the compelling people to purchase a product. So what you had to do, you know, there were different theories, but you could have like tax rebate, these different incentives or trying to like find ways to encourage people to opt into the system. There were all sorts of these, almost like a Rube Goldberg plan to, to achieve some of these goals. Because remember Trump still wanted (laughs) <laughs> Trump was still insisting that like you couldn't have you know you couldn't exclude people with pre-existing conditions right. and all this stuff. Right. So long story short, I remember in January I started January of 2017 I started working at the Daily Beast and one of the first stories I did I started calling up all these like smart conservative insurance and healthcare experts that I that had been talking to me for years telling mm-hmm. me all the problems with Obamacare and they were right about the problems by the way. And I would be like, okay, help me understand how we could fix this. What's right. the Republican alternative? And nobody would say there is no alternative. I talked to these people for days. And they would say, well, we could do this, but then there's this problem. And I'd say, okay, but how, just bottom line it, how does this work? And after like several days, I realized that none of them had a plan and that it was impossible to fix. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a piece. And now in hindsight, it was like, it got a ton of attention, but now I wish I was even more bold. Okay. I basically wrote a piece saying like Republicans can't fix this and they shouldn't even try. It's going to be a disaster. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, and it was, and part of the problem was that I, I assumed that people like Tom Price and, and Paul Ryan actually had come up with a plan, <laughs> you know, like an alternative or, or at least, you know, some semblance of, of that. And, and they didn't, as it turns out. Yep. I was uh, rereading the closing uh, or just skimming over the closing parts of Too Dumb to Fail. And uh, one of the, a few of the things that you suggested for individuals to do were um, be a happy warrior, reject anger, stay humble, go to school. And it sounds like, um, you know, Republicans haven't been doing that generally, at least elected officials. And I I think one of the uh, difficulties 
And I, I think you were right to give that advice. And apparently they didn't take it. But one of the one of the difficulties about this is that it requires like, you know, actual effort mentally and emotionally and morally. Um, whereas doing the easy thing to, um, you know, own the libs is very, you know, you can own the libs real easy, but um, you actually coming up with conservative policy solutions, if you actually care about that, you know, it takes work, it takes um, intellectual honesty. And, um, yeah, and it's I mean, thankless. I, yes, that's the is. other thing is it's yep. thankless. Now you, in fact, it not only is it thankless, it's, it's, it, it's punished. I mean, if you did a lot of work and came up mm -hmm. with, uh, some pretty detailed policy ideas, um, not only would it not, you know, resonate, would it not compete with whatever Trump tweeted this morning, it would probably get you in trouble. I mean, mm -hmm. It would probably be seen as as like, you know, you're a rhino or something, depending on what you came up with. Because even if it's a conservative policy solution, it's it's just easier to to say it's not good enough, right? I mean, like with immigration reform. I mean, I, I had lunch with Rubio's. I remember when Rubio first started champion, championing comprehensive immigration reform, and I had lunch with some of his people, and I said, "Look, I really admire what he's doing here." I I agree with them. This is the right policy and I'm going to support it. Do you guys realize how dangerous this is? Mm -hmm. This is a really bad idea politically. And they said, you, you know, you don't understand. Ruby is committed to this. He's super smart. He, you, you know, he's like a great communicator. He's going to go on talk radio and talk them into this. And I was like, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. But I, but I had seen even, even at that point, and I guess this is what, like 2014 or something when, when they did that, mm -hmm. um, I saw what happened to Rick Perry. I saw what happened to Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney and Rick Perry. Like Mitt, Mitt Romney actually destroyed Rick Perry because Rick Perry was, wasn't anti-immigration enough. Mm -hmm. And so I, I had seen how, how you could weaponize this. And even George W. Bush, you know, when Bush tried to pass immigration reform and John McCain, I mean, the, you know, the, the, the streets are littered with the corpses of, of political, you know, uh, futures of, of, of politicians who tried to, uh, to do immigration reform. Right. Um, and, and it was a pretty, it was a pretty good and I would dare say conservative solution. Sure. And, um, remember the Marco phone, what they said, you might not remember this. No. Okay. So there was a provision in the immigration reform bill that passed the Senate that said, like, if you like, let's say that you're a farmer or a rancher, and you're mm -hmm. somewhere else, you're you're an American citizen and you're a rancher and you're on the border, but you can't get cell phone service. So you can't report illegal crossings. So there was a provision that allowed a certain amount of money for satellite phones to be given to ranchers. Right. That if they saw an illegal crossing, they could report it to the immigration mm -hmm. authorities. Breitbart took that provision and ran a story saying, they called it a Marco phone, saying that the bill was gonna give free cell phones to illegal immigrants. Wow. And it worked. Wow. People believed it. That, I had not heard that one. Yeah. That is, that is a Marco new phone. depressing. Uh, okay, so. That's an example though of, of what we're talking about, right? Someone, mm -hmm. is yeah. An attempt to do a diff very difficult thing and to appease, you know, people who had concerns about illegal immigration right. and they right. totally weaponized it against Marco Rubio. And now of course he's carrying their, their bags for them, you know? Yep.
sad. So uh, speaking of policy ideas that I think are good, but might not have much success, I like to kind of close with a brainstorming question uh, and then a final question. So one thing that I think has gained some popularity, which I would be in favor of, is ranked choice voting. I think that um, you know it could possibly be a method of depolarization if I well there's and lots there's lots of ways to do it as well but just um, generally what do you think of ranked choice voting and then what do you think of its chances? Right. So for people who don't know, this is where instead of so like Donald Trump won the Republican primary mm -hmm. by virtue of he probably had like forty percent of the vote. Right. Um, so he had a plurality, but not a majority. So if Republicans had ranked choice voting in the primaries, let's say, you could have had a situation where like, you could say like, well, Trump is my first pick. My second pick is Ted Cruz. And other people might say Marco Rubio is my first pick. My second pick is Ted Cruz. And Ted Cruz and would have probably, <laughs> yeah. Cruz in that scenario would have emerged as right. the nominee, right? Right. So, um, I, I would say I, I, I'm not quite there yet in terms of, and I think Maine has it, right? Maine already has it. I think Maine does they in have it Alaska. The um, they did. And then Alaska actually just passed it. The way that it works in Alaska is, um, it's, it's an open primary where both parties compete. And then the top four winners from that go into a general. Um, so you could, in theory, have four Republicans or four Democrats on the ballot. It doesn't matter. It just and so that's kind of one, you know, very different way of doing it. Um, so, but I think it uh, failed in Massachusetts. So it's kind of interesting because Alaska is a red state, more or less. Massachusetts is definitely a blue state. So it's not necessarily looking to be a partisan issue right now. But it's also very slowly gaining adoption, but not, but not very popular. I mean, I'm open to it. I'm curious about it. I'm. As a conservative, I'm, I'm cautious and skeptical mm -hmm. about, you know, even, you know, I'd call this a reform, but, right. but there are unintended consequences and it's possible that something bad could come from this too. But what I would like to do is I would like to try this out in the primaries because I mm -hmm. think the goal of a primary, like a Republican primary, let's say, should be to pick somebody who broadly is supported by the party right and so this would be the way to find someone just like the way that you know well this would be the way to find someone who i think there's a consensus support of and so you wouldn't have people like me who end up becoming alienated from the party you know because it would, there would be more of a consensus candidate to emerge so i think that would be my my first foray would be i'd like to see it and again i think we would have had someone other than Donald Trump <laughs> right. would have been the nominee. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Although I guess if you want it in the primary first, I'm not sure that the, pe the people running the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, for that matter, would be willing to do it necessarily. I mean, my understanding in a way is that they basically control um, how a primary is run. They control whether you even have a primary. Yeah, like so, in Virginia, they're having a convention this year mm -hmm. uh, and, and next year mm -hmm. next yeah. year and 20 i guess it's 2021 i forget anyway they're, they're having a convention right. so um they decide right some years they decide to have a primary election and some years they decide to have a convention so but i'm just saying you know just sort of on the record i would i would 
I would like to see it implemented in primaries because I yep. think the goal there is for the party to to pick a consensus candidate who just broadly has broad support. And um, even though Donald Trump had a plurality, you know, he ended up that way. There were people who really hated him, right? And 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 so I think someone like Ted Cruz would have been more, you know, his supporters may not have been as passionately supportive of him as Trump, but like he would have been kind of the second pick of a lot of people. Right. Okay, not that so- I like Ted Cruz because I don't, <laughs> but anyway, just saying. Closing question is, uh, in keeping with the name of the show, can you tell me about a time when you heard an argument from your critics and you thought, you know, you might have a point? Yeah. Um, I would just say, so there's no like defining moments where I had like an aha moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there are things like the death penalty uh, that I wrestle with. There are things like national service that I used to be really vehemently opposed to. And now I sort of am at least open, open to, to it. Okay. the idea of it. But I think probably the biggest thing would be <laughs> all the people who used to say that the Republican Party was like really evil and full of like racists and fascists and, right. and stuff. And I really resented that. Man, did I resent that. And I thought it was a completely bogus argument. And I thought it was really made in bad faith. Um, but recent events have led me to believe that there's at least some truth mm-hmm. to what they were saying and, 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 and things that I was uh, not picking up on. Right. I just, you know, I always, look, both sides have fringe elements and, and people right. that, that, that are uh, bad actors and, and, and uh, extremists. But the Republican Party was obviously in much worse shape than I would have acknowledged mm-hmm. or would have, would, have, would have thought. Yeah. On that topic, I think I've uh, had more or less the same realization. And one of the things that I've realized, if our country is going to get out of this mess, it's more important for you to cr- criticize people who are on your side, so to speak, but are doing it wrong and actually don't stand for what you believe in than it is to criticize the kooks on the other side. Because if you want to actually build a successful movement, at least I think, and it goes again, like a lot of the things we've said, it goes against your natural instincts, but it's in your interest if you actually care about good ideas to harshly criticize those who are on your side, but not, yeah. but not really on your side. Yeah, they, they don't yeah. call it a profile in courage when you do what helps you and attack, right. you know, the libs if you're a conservative, mm-hmm. you know. Um, profiles in courage are often, you know, going against what is perceived as your own side. And by the way, let me say, um, we've, we've, seen, we've seen some this year. We've seen them in Georgia with the Secretary of State. Right. We've seen them. We've seen him with Mitt Romney being one of the few Republicans. And I'm not a, I was, I was never a Romney fan. I was very critical of Romney, mm-hmm. but he's, he's arisen as a profile in courage. And this girl, I think her name's Lauren Victor. Victor's her last name. This was the, uh, I say girl, I think she's like 49. This, this woman who was at a restaurant in DC outside mm-hmm. when this mob of white Black Lives Matter supporters surrounded her and tried to force her to raise her fist in solidarity. Right. And she refused. And Napoleon called that kind of courage, the 2 a.m. kind of courage, the kind that you Mm. can't prepare for. 
And I think she's a hero because yeah. she's, and she's actually someone who is of the left as far as I know. She's attend, voluntarily mm-hmm. attended these sorts of protests. But at that moment, she refused to cave in to the mob. Right. And, uh, and I think we're seeing it in Georgia with the elections officials, including the Secretary of State. Knock on wood, we're seeing it in Arizona with the Republican governor there, Ducey. So um, I think we saw some of it, maybe not quite a profile in courage, but Representative Clyburn, who really almost single-handedly saved Joe Biden's presidency, saved Joe yep. Biden's nomination, uh, stopped the Bernie Sanders momentum, and uh, uh, arose as, a, as, a, as an adult leader. Yep. And uh, I think the African-American community and the Democratic Party, they did what the Republican base couldn't do. Mm-hmm. When the Republicans couldn't stand up to Trump, Clyburn stood up to Sanders and said, no, this stops yep. here. So we've seen some heroism. And it's usually when people stand up to their own side. Exactly. Yep. All right. Well, uh, that's all I had. Matt Lewis, thank you for coming on. You might have a point. Thank you. That's all for today. If you have any feedback, whether it's positive or negative, I'd be glad to hear it. You can find out how to reach me in the show notes. Thanks for listening and take care.